Now, this is where it really gets tough. Because we're going through Malachi, and the really difficult chapter is chapter 2. Um, and it's really important and significant. Let me explain to you why. I'm going to give you a poem. Okay, would you like a poem? Is that going to be all right? I'm going to recite the whole thing to you. Um, the author was a friend of mine, and the poem goes like this. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. Shall I give it to you again? <laughs> History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. So while we're reading the passage together and while we're talking about it, I want to ask you to apply it because there's nothing new under the sun. And you're going to see how incredibly relevant this is for us. And it'll be relevant for you in different ways. I warn you, this is really dangerous, which is why I insisted to Michael that he let me do it, not him. <laughs> because this stuff you get hung for. So we'll have some fun, won't we? And I've already explained to you that my sepsis has kicked in today very seriously, so I'm struggling. And that's probably good as well. So here we go. Malachi chapter 2. Listen, you priests, this command is for you. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you've not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices. And I will throw you on the manure pile. Then at last you will know it was I who sent you this warning, so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nice stuff, isn't it? Gives new meaning to the phrase, a pile of poo. <laughs> the purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace. That's what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They didn't lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives. And they turned many from lives of sin. The words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God. And people should go to him for instruction. For the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. But you priests have left the Lord's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. For you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other 
violating the covenant of our ancestors. Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. <coughs> May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this, and yet still brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart, do not be unfaithful to your wife. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he's pleased with them. You've wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who'll be able to endure it when he comes? Who'll be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he'll be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross, he will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem, as he did in the past. Tough stuff. It's worth reading again at some point this week and looking at it for yourself and just checking through what God is actually saying. But remember, history repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. And that's as relevant today as it was then. So my job is very simply to try and unpack it for you and explain what it actually means. Malachi is an interesting prophet who we rarely talk very much about. He appears on the scene somewhere between AD, uh, BC 460 and BC 400. He's an interesting prophet because we're not even sure that we know his name. Malachi simply means my messenger. And so Malachi may be the name of his title or his own personal name. Either way, he comes as the messenger of God. Why is so important? He insists that God persists 
in speaking to his people. He insists that there is a huge gap between what God thinks and what God's people think. Now, that's really unpopular nowadays. Because the idea we have is that God will baptize our culture for us. That God will accept us for what we think. Instead of recognizing that we have to acknowledge God for what he thinks. We fall in line with him. He doesn't fall in line with us. Listen, folks, it's not that difficult to understand. There is a divide that is largely unrecognized by God's people. And the result is, what happened for Israel? They did not seem to be a million miles away from God. They did not seem to be in great sin. They did not seem to be pernicious in everything they got up to. They were a pretty reasonable lot. Their only problem was they were just half-hearted. Just half-hearted. That was all. In a few weeks' time, we will look at the church of Laodicea and understand what being lukewarm really means. But the half-heartedness of God's people in Israel's day and in Malachi's day was legendary. They loved the neutral zone. They hated being too enthusiastic, too focused on God. They lacked the energy to serve God wholeheartedly. That's just the introduction. That's just so you know the context and where we're going to go. So what does God say through Malachi? What does God tell them? Now, if you've resonated with any of that, if you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I serve God wholeheartedly, if you're thinking, I'm not sure I don't want God to believe what I believe, what I believe, I'm not sure that I'm prepared to believe what God believes. I'm not convinced this is irrelevant to me. Then look at what God says through Malachi. Because all he says in Malachi 2 is three things. It takes a long time saying it, but he says three things, and it runs into the first five verses of chapter 3. The first thing that God says through Malachi is, Honor my name. Honor my name. Let me be first. Let me rule. And he outlines in Malachi what people are doing wrong and how blooming relevant it is. The first sin they commit is determinism. They've got God in his place. And having got God where God's supposed to be, they leave him there. They worship wealth, celebrities, ideologies, and ideas. They just miss out on worshipping the God who usually goes against our wealth, against our celebrities, against our ideologies, and against our ideas. Now, if you're sitting here and saying, I am wealthy... There's nothing sinful in being wealthy at all. You're perfectly allowed to be. In fact, you're one of the favored ones. 
Because if God has given you wealth, it's because he trusts you with it. If you're poor, it's okay. You're one of the good guys. God knows he couldn't trust you with wealth, so he leaves you poor. <laughs> That's all right. But if you are wealthy, you've got huge responsibility. Because it's not the money you've got, it's what you do with it. And that's what's absolutely critical. The second thing that was going on in Malachi's day was that you have the cult. I, I love this because people go, oh. You've got the cult of the autonomous individual. That's what postmodernism actually means. It's the autonomous individual. It's the person who says, I will do and I will fulfill what I would want to do and what I would want to fulfill. In other words, there is no absolute truth except the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. And therefore, truth is my truth. So what Steve believes for Steve, he can't put on me. Because that's his truth. And what I believe is truth, I can't put on Steve, because that's my truth. And that's the way that we have beautifully destroyed any idea that God has rules that apply to all of us. And yet, the truth of Scripture is we are not autonomous individuals designed to create our own rules for ourselves. We're there to do what God tells us to do because God's way is better than ours. Ruth and I uh, in Britain never, ever voted for the same political party. Um, we always differed on that. She voted her way and I voted his way. And <laughs> And yet the reality is that we create our own truth and believe that that is acceptable to God, which it's not. The third problem in Malachi's day was they produced the, the reduced standard version. They cut God's truth down to what they were happy with. And so when they looked at the universe, it became Mother Nature rather than the universe that God had created. They trusted human progress, karma, capitalism, and destiny. They got God out of the equation because he rocked the boat for them. And yet God starts off by speaking to Malachi in chapter 1 and insisting that God loves us that we're not just individuals, we're part of a people that God loves. And that thinking as if we are just individuals is a fatal mistake. And so Malachi starts, and this is where he starts hitting out. And he starts with the religious leaders. That the priests have disgraced God so Malachi threatens that God is going to disgrace the priests. And he starts hitting at some of the basic things of life. He hits out at marriage. And as wives grew older and less physically attractive with advancing years, 
the people discarded them and believed that was acceptable to God. And everything, the people introduced their own ideas of compromise. God will live with what I want. i got news for you, folks. He won't. God does not expect you to pray for what you want. God expects you to pray for what he wants. God does not expect you to pray that he will bless you for what you want to do. God wants you to pray that he will bless what he's given to you and told you to do. That is why there are two words that God hates in the American church. I knew this was going to get popular. This is going to be very acceptable. The two words God hates is my ministry. What the heck is your ministry? (laughs) If it's your ministry, it's not ministry. And if it's ministry, it's not yours. It has to be his. And so the reality of what God is saying right from the beginning was summed up by a converted British Jewish preacher who put it beautifully like this. This is what God wants. He wants you to live dangerously. He wants you to love lavishly. And he wants you to serve humbly. What the heck are you doing outside, you two? You just keep going outside. You just keep welcoming people coming in instead of coming in and getting ready. You go and take that yellow truck all over the place when you could be doing something useful. What is your family up to? You've actually worked it out that you're here to live dangerously, to love lavishly, and to serve humbly. And whatever people think of you, there is a father in glory who looks down and smiles on you as a family for the way you love him, for the way you serve him, and for what you do. Sorry to embarrass you, but it's true. And as far as the worship was concerned, it was terrific. Jocelyn and Gracelyn, you were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And the reality, Stacey, is that what you did to actually get us to focus prayer, these are the things that God loves. It's not that God loves the superstars and standing on platforms. God is really concerned that we live dangerously, love lavishly, and serve humbly. It's really important. And so while Malachi is digging away at the priests, he tells them that the words of a priest's lips, this is verse 7, should preserve the knowledge of God and people should go to him for instructions. I am really worried how today we are told that it doesn't matter how much you understand and how much you know. Just so long as you stand and announce what's in your heart, I'm worried about that. 
because I actually believe that you can stand and share your ignorance with everybody else and it's not going to be a great blessing. <laughs> Sometimes there's hard work that has to be done. Can I tell you a story? There was a, a guy named Ahmed Didat. You ever heard of Ahmed Didat? He's the apostle of the Ahmadiyya Muslims. He's their finest apologist. Great speaker. And Ahmed Didat and a theologian from Nazareth, a man named Anis Sharosh, an Arab Christian, agreed that they would enter into a debate. And they would debate whether Muhammad or Jesus was the way to God. And they decided they wanted to do it in a very public arena. So they chose a place called the Royal Albert Hall that you'll probably never heard of. But the Royal Albert Hall is the piece de resistance. It is the British concert hall in the heart of London. And so they were going to have this debate to debate whether Muhammad or Jesus was the way to God. And it was decided that they needed, because this was a British debate, they needed to have a chairman. Now, back in those days, I was head of the evangelical churches, and so uh, they duly arrived on my doorstep and said, we want you to chair this debate. Well, this is something to die for. I mean, who wouldn't love the idea of trying to take 3,000 screaming Muslims and just under 2,000 screaming Christians and try and keep them from killing each other <laughs> in the middle of a debate on whether Jesus or Muhammad was the way to God. So I have to chair this debate. Now, there are rules for the chairman of a British debate. One of the rules is you can't voice an opinion. If you're the chairman, you're not allowed to go down on one side or the other. True, Wayne? That's the rules of debating. And so I had to sit at the front with 3,000 screaming Muslims and nearly 2,000 screaming Christians and try and keep them apart without expressing an opinion. And what you do with a debate in Britain is you get the proposer of the motion to speak first. Then you get the opposer of the motion to speak. Then they are allowed a seconder to speak for them on both sides. Then you open it for a floor debate where anybody sitting there is allowed to contribute if the chairman calls them. And then, at the end, the opposer of the motion is uh, allowed to speak and the proposer of the motion is allowed to finish off. That's the rules of debate. And so we get to the floor debate when anybody can enter in. And I don't know if you've ever had to work with Islamic speakers, but they're pretty good. And from the floor, the quality of argument was not bad at all. And one of the Muslim guys stands up, and I recognize him, so he's speaking. And he says, well, of course, 
Nowhere in your Bible does Jesus say that he's God. Now, before you say, yes, he does, now tell me where. Okay? And so what happens at this debate is you've got all these hundreds of Christians all saying, well, of course, Jesus doesn't actually say that he is God. And I'm sitting there in the chair thinking, you stupid load of wallies! Do you not ever read your Bible? I said it in love, of course. <laughs> but tragically, nobody denied the Muslim speaker. That's because they don't know the Greek. Because in English, that's true. But in the Greek text, Jesus says time and time and time and time and time again that he is God. I'm not going to bore you by going through all of the references. Let me just give you one set because that will help us. You know that in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't. That's not in the Bible. Sorry. You know that in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No, he doesn't. It's not in the Bible. You know that in Scripture says Jesus says, I am the true vine. No, he doesn't. Not in there. You know that there time and time again Jesus says who he is and prefaces it with I am. And we know the I am sayings from John, they're, they're all fiction. They're not in the biblical text. And for those of you who've done Greek, you know they're not in the biblical text. Because when I say to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life, grammatically, what is I am in grammar? It's a it's a verb. The same as the French, je suis, I am. That's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible, in the Greek, is the same words, but they're not a verb, they're a noun. So you can't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a verb, and you're speaking it as a verb. What you can say is use it as a noun. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God reveals to Moses his name. I am. It's not that complicated, guys. But it's really important to know it. Because if you use I am as a verb, it's a name. It's a noun. I am. And if you... Anyone got any Greek? Translate I am for me. All right, I'll let you off the hook. I am in Greek is ego, which is where you get your word ego from. And I me, 
which is the same as the French je suis, I am. And you may say, well, that doesn't translate I am. Now, if you transliterate it, if you do it literally, ego I me is I, I am. And so scripture's full of it. I, I am the true vine. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am the bread of life. I, time and again, I, I am. Because it's a noun. It's a name. So why don't we translate it in a way that we understand it? Because the translators are being true to the text. But they give us the wrong meaning. So if I could deviate from the text for a moment and give you the proper translation, what Scripture's full of is, I'm God, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm God, I'm the true vine. I'm God, I'm the bread of life. Time and again, Jesus says, I'm God. But you've got to speak Greek to understand that. So that's why Scripture says, and that's why Malachi says, to the priests, you've got to do your work. It's no good just waking up one morning and thinking, I'll stand up and say what feels good today. Do your work. Work at it. Work away at it. And they lost that debate because nobody knew how to work with the Greek text because it is so simple and so straightforward. And the chairman is sitting there thinking, have you got it? But as we move on from what God is saying to the priests is we then got to the, we get to the whole issue of infidelity. Malachi says, you've profaned the Lord's sanctuary, you're marrying foreign women, and you're failing to produce godly offspring. Now, marrying foreign women is a tricky one. This is not racism. This is about faith, not racial origin. You're not supposed to marry unbelievers, is what God is saying. Whether they're black, white, yellow, purple, or green is indifferent to God. It's who they know, who they follow, who they serve. One of my kids is married to an absolutely dropped dead, gorgeous girl of Kenyan origin. That's fine. She loves Jesus. Don't care what the color of her skin is. Because there are more important things around than that. And so when you're getting to the God hates divorce, what God hates is women being beaten up by their husbands. Women being deprived of proper care and support. God hates children not coming to know and love him. God hates families where there's no family prayer and spiritual growth. God hates the breakdown of the church and family partnership. And God hates it when his church is not growing by evangelism. Because that's the natural form 
of growth is more people coming to Jesus. But this whole business of divorce gets everybody so, so angry. Can I tell you another story? In, in Britain, one of the things that I had to do was I was the program director for an event called Spring Harvest. Spring Harvest is something that I started with a friend of mine in 1979. And it grew to 85,000 people coming each year for a week. And Spring Harvest was great because we had to take them in sort of 10,000 job lots for a week. And we, we ran this thing over several weeks. And it was a, a handful because you'd got everyone from the archbishops to the Pentecostal pastors speaking with each other. Not against each other, with each other. And the great thing was that we would have them for cheese and wine parties every night to try and iron out the differences that had emerged during the day. It was all great fun. Because they were all evangelical Christians, but they just happened to have very different ways of church government, very different styles of worship. And it was fun. But it also meant you had people from different perspectives and everybody knew what the, the, the rules were. Don't just try and be controversial. Any fool can do that. Let's give people truth. Now you can say where we disagree, but make sure you put the other perspective there as well. So dangerous stuff. One year, a friend of mine was speaking <clears throat> And he was arguably the finest Bible teacher in Britain of his day. And he decided that he would actually say something that he believed very seriously and not think about what he was saying. Well, he may have done, but then he was being very cruel and very contentious. Because he stood up and said, God hates divorce. It's true. And he said, if you are divorced, you are outside of the will of God. Do not leave me. I'm not going to agree with this, okay? Just give me space. Let me tell, let me tell my story. <laughs> and he went on, if God wants to spew you out of his mouth if you're divorced, God has no time for you at all. You are outside the will of God. which was very interesting. If you are the leader of an event and you've got your top speaker of the week saying everything that you personally would totally disagree with. But this guy was formidable. Not the intellect of a razor. You're very familiar with his stuff. Very quiet, very gracious until he speaks. And what happened was a friend of mine who's a lawyer and I uh, had to go and see this guy and explain. Because when he finished, I'd got up on the platform and said, I disagree. Sorry. 
And he was furious with me. And I said, I had to say that I disagreed with you. I've got something, arguably, between 500 and 1,000 people in pieces. Because you've just told them that they're absolutely outside the will of God. You know, the woman who was beaten up every alternate day until she was forced into divorce. The woman whose husband went fornicating up, down, north, south, east, and west until she'd had enough and got a divorce. The guy whose wife just walked out on him and totally left him and never came back. You gave no qualifications, whatever. And Scripture does. So I'm not happy. His next book, I got savaged by name. <laughs> it's all there in print. I never entered into a war. I'm not interested in that, but I'm really interested in saying what is truth. If you're divorced and you were the victim of abuse, of infidelity, of desertion or of rejection. My Jesus does not dismiss you, discredit you, or reject you. Even though he hates divorce. Just really important to add the next bit. Oh, and there's something else as well. Let's just say that you were the person who got up to the infidelity and the rejection and the desertion. Where does that leave us? That leaves us with Scripture again. See, the great thing about Scripture is there's a thing called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is not the name of a German fighter pilot. <laughs> hermeneutics is the art of biblical scholarship. You allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. There's no other form of interpretation you can allow. But Scripture can interpret Scripture. And that's how we know that infidelity can be the legitimate cause of divorce. But even if you were the guilty party, Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture says, I will remember their sins no more. Scripture says, you have a God who forgives and loves forgiving. God hates divorce. He doesn't hate the divorcee. God hates sin. He doesn't hate the sinner. That doesn't mean that the sin becomes legal. It means that the sinner can come in repentance and faith and receive forgiveness and a whole new way of life. And that's the message behind divorce. So what are the results of all of this? God loves marriage. It's covenant love. It's becoming one flesh. God doesn't want us mismatched with unbelievers. Why does that leave you? That means that if you are mismatched with an unbeliever, 
You don't have a license to leave them. Now the bit you're not going to like, but it's, it's there in the Word. So. The unbeliever does have a license to leave you. The unbeliever can leave you because of your faith. You can't leave them because of your faith. Be very careful about that. That's not, I'm not inciting uh, an unbelieving husband or wife to leave, the, uh, uh, to leave their partner. I'm just saying that you can. It's possible. I would encourage you to stay together and learn from each other and grow. And for the wife who thought that it was a license for her to leave her husband, no, it's a, an encouragement to evangelism. You're not supposed to leave your husband. You're supposed to lead him to Jesus. You may not have wanted to hear that, but it's still true. And so many of us have benefited so much. My wife was told at our theological cemetery, seminary, that she should never marry me. That it would be a bad witness for the seminary and it shouldn't be allowed to happen. Her mother agreed. Fortunately, her father, who was the president of the seminary, which was the largest seminary, largest evangelical seminary in Europe, refused to agree and said, I believe in a God who still does miracles today. <laughs> we may need one here, but that's okay. And the glorious reality is that God only divorced Israel because of her consistent infidelity. What we're allowed to do is allow God to remake the marriage Remake us. Make us faithful in marriage, faithful to our fellow believers, and faithful to a faithful God. And as a result of all that, where does Malachi end? He ends with God saying, don't wear me out. You've failed to trust God. You've failed to love God. You've failed to obey God. You've spoken to each other and not spoken to God. You've spread unbelief. Oh, guys, please. Please grow up. Please stop talking about everything that the world's talking about and trying to put a Christian gloss on it. There are things you're supposed to talk about. You're supposed to talk to God with his agenda, not yours. You're supposed to talk to each other about Jesus and faith and coming to meet the living God. You're supposed to actually introduce people to faith. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And you're supposed to bring other people into that relationship. And so only talk to other people about what is going to bring them into a relationship with the living God. If it's not, oh, now I'm not in Britain, am I? So I can't say it. Can I? Can I get away with it with you? This is what I would say in Britain. If you're talking to people about things other 
than what would bring them into a relationship with Jesus, then shut up. <laughs> talk about what God wants you to talk about. See eternal results from your conversation. Bring people to the living God. And by the way, what shows that this is a good church is if it's got people in it who've come to Jesus through the testimony of this church. That's the big aim. That's the big objective. I whipped my people in Connecticut with that for years until there were hundreds and hundreds of people coming each week who'd met Jesus through the church. Really important that we get hold of that. What happens? God says, don't wear me out. Don't speak to each other and not to God. Don't spread unbelief. Instead, encourage each other. What happens at the end of Malachi? That silence lasted 400 years. For 400 years from the moment Malachi finished, there is no uttering in Israel of these four words. Thus saith the Lord. God was silent for 400 years. Until a man named John the Baptist came into the wilderness and said, Repent and prepare the way of the Lord. And so God waits at the end of Malachi, not for his people to get new ideas, not for his people to change their own situation. God waits for people to be ready for him to speak through them. God has said he will not abandon his people. God has said that the worship of God will continue. God has said that he will refine his people. There are 400 years of silence while God waits. Now, I know I've said this to you before, so will you forgive me? Because I'm coming into land. But even though I've said it to you before, I want to say it again. Malachi ends with the refiner's fire. God has got a pot of molten gold. Written on it is this. Soapbox! And that's written on the pot of molten gold. God turns the heat up. And I say, God can't turn the heat up. We're God's people. He loves us. He's going to bless us. He's going to do nice things for us. Life's going to be wonderful and perfect. I'm sorry, you don't have the same God I do. <laughs> I don't know a God who guarantees me a get-out-of-jail-free card that I will miss out on pain and suffering. The only thing this God says to me is I'll walk with you in the middle of it. And what he does with the pot of molten gold is he turns the heat up. 
and the impurities rise to the surface. And as the great refiner, he lifts the impurities off and out. And what does he do then? Blesses you, anoints you, encourages you. No, turns the heat up. More impurities rise to the surface and he skims them off. What does he do next? Turns the heat up. More impurities rise and they get skimmed off. Turns the heat up. What happens next? He says, well, Michael's all right, so the rest of you will get there. No, he doesn't. Just turns the heat up. More impurities rise and they get skimmed off. How long does he go on doing it? He's the refiner. He goes on doing it till he can look into the gold and see his own reflection. And that's what our God wants to do with us. That's what Malachi is all about. Let the leaders lead in God's way, in God's world. Let's lose the passion to deny what God wants and desert his principles and standards. And let's make sure that we don't wear God out before he's got his glory shining through us.